Hello, welcome to the Human Awesome Hello. Podcast. <laughs> How are you doing, Jamie? It's cold like last time, but it's still good. Oh yeah. We're I'm approaching the blanket. approaching the shortest day. As well. <laughs> are we? Oh yeah, we are. We are. Well, you know I, how last time I was um, last time we were recording, I was mocking you for for it being sunny here and and kind of crap in, in England. Now I'm not laughing anymore. <laughs> I'm just wearing my blanket and trying to stay warm. And uh, yeah, no, the days are pretty pretty like gray these days in in Cyprus. The most interesting things about how like the sun sets at 4 p.m. is not how early the sun sets; is how everyone's surprised every year that the sun sets at 4 p.m. Yeah, yeah. That, that, honestly, it, it's crazy here. I, it just feels like you're losing hours of the day. I, I always, I just can never believe it. Um, but then also, it kind of gets me up a bit earlier. Like today, I went to the chiropractor, um, or up and early at uh, 8 a.m completely uncharacteristic of me uh, but it was just a, a routine thing she just gave me an explanation as to why um i wasn't as strong as you she says it's due to a birth thing genetic thing like don't ask questions she said she as strong said as me complicated yeah 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 she said i'm she weaker know who's that, knows who i am it's a, yeah yeah she said it's a genetic thing like don't ask any <laughs> questions it's just it's too complicated you wouldn't get it anyways uh enough about the weather Let's actually talk about a real subject instead of small talk. <laughs> Today, we're having Cicely Fianis on. Uh, she's an expert in wildlife trading and birds specifically. So everyone give her a big round of applause to welcome her in. Hi, thanks for having me today. Hello. So Cicely, do you want to maybe give everyone a little introduction to sort of what your background is, um, where you come from, and, and what your interests are. Yeah, so hi everybody, to everyone listening, I'm Cicely, um, I'm from London, and I'm currently a member of the Geis Institute of Conservation and Ecology at the University of Kent, and at the minute I'm looking at exploring different ways to improve species identification in birds by using machine learning, and specifically at the minute I'm focusing on Southeast Asian songbirds. Southeast Asian songbirds, nice. I personally have been seeing, I feel, less and less birds around. I don't know if this is something that's quite characteristic of, of everywhere in the world, but I just wanted to ask that kind of as my first question. I have good memories from when I was a kid of what I feel like were days full of songbird, uh, what am I saying, of bird songs. Whereas it feels like these days, I'm not seeing that many around me. So can you tell us maybe a little bit about what's happening in the bird kingdom and you know whether this idea of of, uh, of decreasing numbers is based in, in fact? Yeah, so thank you for a very good question. So obviously globally, there are, there's a lot of nuances. So there are a lot of birds that are increasing, but overall, in terms of the world's bird species, we are seeing a lot of declines in really common species. So, for example, in really globalized parts of Europe, we don't have as many farmland birds or as many songbirds or larks or thrushes or any of these really common species. They've all declined in massive numbers. So that is definitely true, at least in Europe. Um, and there are other areas of the world, for example, in Southeast Asia, where we are experiencing an extinction crisis for songbirds in particular but also for a lot of other species so as globalization increases and as there are you know increasing threats to birds like habitat fragmentation tropical forest disturbance increasing populations we do definitely see declines in species that were already vulnerable and obviously once we combine it with the overarching threat of climate change then there are a lot of species that are struggling. Hmm. So what got you into interested into birds? Is it something to do with bird watching or and also maybe more specifically Asia? Why Asia rather than you know Europe or, or South America? So I actually ended up having to do a slightly different dissertation project for my undergraduate degree. And I was really lucky to have a supervisor who kind of let me take a project in a different direction. A very cool guy called Tim Blackburn at the University, University College London. And I was initially supposed to do a project on looking at bird trade and how it is 
bringing in new invasive species to different countries. And we were focusing on recently published studies from wildlife trade NGOs such as Traffic. Uh, and in sort of 2015, 2016, they published a series of inventories of markets in different key or capital cities in Southeast Asia. And once I sort of started to read the literature, I, I realized that this extinction crisis was going on. And I sort of felt that the conser conservation issues were sort of more interesting than the invasive species potential because trade in Southeast Asia, at least for birds, is really interesting because it's incredibly local and this sort of local demand is actually more of a threat than global demand. So rather than it being necessarily focused on invasive species, is actually a lot of the native avifauna or the bird species in those countries that are being trapped and traded in markets. So that's kind of what initially got me interested in bird trade in Asia. Yeah. Right. So um, what, do you have any ideas why there's such uh, demand for birds in these local areas? And is, is this a, a recent thing or is there, a, you know, perhaps there's been new ways to get birds or how, how old is this uh, high demand for birds in these areas? Um, a really, really good question. So as I, I was actually hoping you'd ask me um, <laughs> a question like this, because there are actually a really, really diverse range of different subcultures that operate to um, create this big concept of bird ownership. So there are some that we know are really, really historical. So for example, a lot of birds are trapped for religious release, which is really common in Buddhist and Taoist religions. And, and it's not necessarily just birds, also turtles and other animals are involved in the trade. But what basically happens is people buy birds near temples and then you release the bird from the cage and it's supposed to generate or increase your karma and merit. So that's obviously been going on for centuries. And in terms of bird ownership, if we sort of trace it back to the origins of when pet ownership started to increase, a lot of people wanted to possess, you know, these really beautiful parrot species yeah. or birds of paradise. But in terms of trade in Southeast Asia, particularly in Indonesia, it's grown a lot in the sort of past 20, 30 years due to the rise of this phenomena called Kichau mania, which is basically bird mania. Um, and what essentially started happening was people started to clock basically that all these birds had really beautiful songs. And then what kind of arose were songbird competitions. So this has massively increased in popularity and it's definitely fueled by the rise of social media platforms like mm. Facebook. Um, you know, there are thousands of groups where people trade birds or buy birds or compare the quality of their song, for example, on Facebook. But also sites like YouTube are used to train birds to sing. Um, so some videos of birds singing on YouTube have like millions of views because people use them to train their birds to sing for extended periods of time. So oh. there's a lot of different nuances to the trade. but And we also see emerging trends coming all the time, even during COVID-19. And speaking of uh, nuances... I'm, we're going to take a really quick break from this introductory um, sesh to go into our little game and see if you can spot the nuance of the animal sound. Um, we don't have a, a title for this game yet. It's in the, pro it's in the works. <laughs> but if you have an idea, send us um, what you think would be a proper name at Twitter or on Instagram or Facebook on, by email, all these sort of things. We will probably accept anything because we're desperate for any name <laughs> other than guess the animal sound. Um, <laughs> I've sent you a link now on the chat to a to my drive account, and you should be able to listen to this sound. We'll start with the guest. You can tell me one guess of what you think that may be. Uh, just for everyone listening, right now the score is Jamie uh, representing the Human Odyssey team 
who you know i'll be playing every now and then but uh for now it's just just, just say my percentage don't say my score <laughs> he's got a hundred percent yeah yeah hundred percent correct rate um one never nil. say the score no don't, don't <laughs> sorry sorry it's like that okay okay I'll, i promise i wink wink it'll be edited but right now sicily is representing the guest team hopefully she'll do them proud you get one guess each, then a hint, and it goes on until hopefully one of you figures it out. For anyone who isn't familiar with the rules of this game, both contestants represent a team. Our guest represents the guest team. Uh, Jamie or myself, when playing, will represent the Human Odyssey team. And it's basically a challenge is to see who can guess the weird obscure animal sound that i've chosen to torment them with this week the contestants are now listening again to the sound both seem to have an inkling as to what it could be um i can hear it i am very <laughs> unsure what it is um i am gonna take a random guess hopefully jamie won't win but i'll try is it by any chance a panda? No, it is not a panda. I would say good guess, me. but it's pretty far off. Wait, is isn't it a bird scander? Like, didn't we say? Mm. Oh shit! I can. Oh, I'm so sorry to say. I completely forgot. Jimmy accidentally got out of me before the call that it was a bird. Get out. Okay. I, I, I asked, is it going to be a bird? And no, you said, I yes, you didn't say it's a secret. All right, so you get, you get okay, to sorry, guess, Cicely, you get to guess Cicely, again. Go ahead. It's, uh, okay. you, can guess, you get to guess again. Go for it. I mean, it kind of sounds like a turkey. Turkey, oh. Pretty close, but nope, not a turkey. Okay, go on, Jamie. Um, so this is technically cheating, but it sounds like it's in a tropical setting of some sort. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I agree. It's definitely a large. You know, bird. I can't answer it, that. Don't <laughs> ask me to break the rules, Jamie. It's, it's a large bird, probably. Um, um, let's guess. Toucan. Mm, nope, not a toucan. But okay, uh, I have. You guys, I have an you guys idea. Get, okay, I'm gonna just give you the hint that I'm supposed to. Okay. To give you, um, the adults of this type of bird uh, average about 100 to 124 centimeters in height, and they weigh so from anywhere from four kilo, 3.5 kilos, sorry, to 6.7 kilos. So it's it's quite a, a kind of large bird, um, okay. and their wingspan is about al almost two meters. Sometimes a meter and a half to two meters. Is it by any chance a hornbill? No, no, it's not. Um, Jamie, one more guess, and then another flamingo. Another... No, oh, this is harder than I thought it would be. Right, so let's say. Um, you can find it in, well, native speaking, you can find it in South America. It's, hmm, I don't know if this will be too much of a hint, but it's black and white. That's mostly its colors. And it's got a little bit of red on its, uh, on its sort of pecker or something, but it's basically black and white. Mm. I was going to say ostrich based on what you just said, but uh. potentially... Oh no, no. I think I know what it could be actually. I just keep thinking penguin, but it's no, I know it's not a penguin. No. That's not my guess. No, you said you responded. I didn't, <laughs> didn't, I didn't want a response. <laughs> Black and white bird. I don't know. Are you giving up? I'm just going to say emu. Mm, no, you got, I feel like you guys are thinking a bit <clears throat> too exotic. Um, Okay, what final hint. Um, I think they say in the UK it belongs to the Queen. Oh. Sicily? 
belongs to the creed. I was going to say maybe a ria because it's like an ostrich and an emu. And I think they're in South America, but maybe a ria is too big. No, it's a type of... I'm, I'm pretty sure they're birds. Yes, they are birds. Okay. <laughs> I was, okay. I was maybe, maybe Jamie knows... <laughs> Maybe Jamie knows the monarchy better than I do. Uh, so you like black and white. I, I said, so, so wait, just for Cicely to maybe get her guess first. I said the, they, I, I've heard at least in my time in the UK that people consider them to be legally all owned by the Queen in England. Legally all owned by the Queen. Okay. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I feel like it's something that's quite common in people's in in england okay i think i'm gonna need to wait another round jamie if you'd like to yeah. it's is it a swan yes it is it is no! swan. Where, why is the, where's the black on a swan yeah um, where's well, the black on a swan okay true <laughs> okay so well, when you when you said it was black and white beaks. and red you just meant it was white and red is that what you meant no i should have probably said that this i was specifically <laughs> listening to a black naked swan uh, right okay south american type of swan but the the actual swan you're, you're telling me i lost like... then <laughs> <laughs> the european types of swans also have black on their beaks um just just at the top of the beak but it's true that maybe the black was a bit uh I'm slightly bit misleading <laughs> misleading I'll, I'll try and, and restrain oh, restrain yeah. myself from from color i mean ones next jamie's time. record is still intact i think i went shot up to 200 <laughs> percent. <laughs> that's not quite how it works but yes let's say that i went for ria it's very obscure yeah, like I, bird. I not going to lie, I had to look that up. Skander's hint strayed too far from, from biology. True, well, I'm... You just I'm gave getting... it to me. You just practically gave the answer to me. <laughs> well, I don't know. I thought, is it true, though, that the Queen owns the, the swans? I don't I know. Too sure. no. I, I've yeah. actually never heard that, but... Let me look that up. There's because definitely that's someone annoy who me all that. day. The Queen owns the swans. Um, of the world on the thames oh there you go by prerogative right the british crown enjoys ownership of all unmarked oh, mute oh. swans in open water yep. that's so stupid yeah that is stupid God, don't we love the monarchy um enough about birds though let's talk about birds so sicily <laughs> i wanted to maybe start back with your project uh which you've set up with two of um i guess your co-workers or friends um, called trade chirps. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about how that came to be and what the idea is behind it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we basically set it up last beginning of last year, and I set it up with two friends who I met on Twitter, which is kind of a oh. new <laughs> a new thing for me. Um, and one of them is well, her nickname is Nui, but she works for the Wildlife Conservation. In Indonesia, mm -hmm. and she was involved in a songbird demand reduction campaign in Indonesia. So we were talking a little bit. And the other member is Carlina Indraswari, and she's just finishing her PhD at the Queensland University of Technology in Australia. And it turns out Carlina and Nui already knew each other because they were both working on birds in Indonesia. Um, and we sort of decided to make an online forum or space to kind of make a repository of different media articles that were linked to bird trade to kind of have one place where everything could be viewed. And this is because we sort of felt there wasn't enough global attention specifically on the songbird extinction crisis going on in Southeast Asia, but also about how normalized bird trade and trafficking has become globally. Okay, and so why Twitter maybe and, and why why are, are you guys trying to publish things around the topic or maybe like create sort of a website around it or will you kind of stick to to enhancing the, the voices around it on social yeah videos? so kind of a mix of all of those things so i've nearly finished developing the website so hopefully when the podcast is ready the website will also be ready so right, stay great. tuned we'll put i guess the url in the in the description whenever yeah. it's ready um and 
one thing that I'm kind of quite keen to do is to highlight the sort of diverse voices that are involved in bird trade research. Because wildlife trade is quite an interesting field of research to get into because there are a lot of very established scientists and academics, but there are also a lot of sort of early career researchers. I mean, I'm using my definition of early career. Most people use early career to describe PhD students or postdocs, um, mm. which I don't really consider as early career necessarily. Um, so for example, we've got some articles coming up with people who are researching online trade in raptors, um, people who are sort of already relatively established in the field, like Carlina and a really, really cool scientist called Harry Marshall, who's done a lot of the really interesting work that's come out recently on bird trade in Indonesia. And I think, yeah, it's more just to sort of create a community beyond the official structures, you know, of the IUCN and BirdLife and all these other NGOs. Um, so it's really interesting. There are a lot of people who sort of tag us in bird-related news or have sort of, you know, given us some good feedback on, on how it's useful and how they're sort of understanding these really interesting aspects of trade. Because bird trade is so normalized, they're probably the most traded group in the world. So I think having a greater awareness of it, both in a space like Twitter, which is where we started because a lot of academics and a lot of people you know, in the public sphere, like not necessarily scientists with loads of degrees, but a lot of sort of citizens, I guess, are also on Twitter. So I think it's a really useful way to kind of break free of like the ivory tower, so to speak, and make conservation and news of wildlife trade a little bit more accessible. There are some really cool media organizations like the New York Times, for example, they've done probably the most extensive reporting on wildlife trade, but I think they have a paywall beyond a few articles. So it's not necessarily yeah. the best place to learn about trade. So that's sort of our vision, I guess. Hmm. Is there any place that you'd recommend people start with bird conservation information? Like if, if people want to learn something over the weekend or, or even get into it properly? Yeah. So obviously I would say trade charts first <laughs> and yeah, the website yeah. when it comes out. That's kind of um, what, we've, what we'd like to do. But some definitely good places to start is just looking on the broad pages of organisations like BirdLife. So BirdLife is quite unique in the conservation world because they have offices and local partners in basically every country in the world. So it's kind of the centre and they have a really interesting section on bird trade because they're doing a global review of the impacts of bird trade and different policies linked to it this year. And you can also search for the Southeast Asian Songbird Specialist Group within the IUCN, and there's a lot of information there. And one last thing, there's a, there was a really, really cool campaign called Silent Forest, which was about how forests are going silent in Southeast Asia. They also have a really cool website but sadly, the campaign ended last year, so it's not as public facing anymore. But those three places are definitely a good, a good place to start. So, it, yeah, it, it seems to me that globally you'll have uh, many people being sympathetic to, uh, to your cause. Um, but I'd like to know in the local areas where demand is really high and this trade is taking place, um, is there much contention uh, on the issue of bird trade or is this perhaps kind of a non-issue? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. Um, I think, obviously, without overgeneralizing too much, I would probably describe it as a non-issue because, for example, if we speak about consumption, so whether that's you own a bird as a pet or for contests or if you want to buy one to release it for your merit, um, they're so deeply culturally rooted. It's not really the same, for example, as in the UK and Europe, where we did have this massive bird owning culture. For example, there were still markets well into the 20th century in the mm. UK to buy wild birds. But we kind of had a simultaneous transition where we switched to bird watching and conservation and sort of reinforcing um, the, like, I guess, colonialist paradigm that's quite common in conservation in terms of preserving this concept of wilderness. Whereas, for example, in countries like China and Indonesia, 
those sort of conservation ethics, they never really started at the same time period. So uh, there is sort of local resistance to owning wild birds and things like that, but it's quite limited to the conservation community. Um, and what I thought was a really interesting example, and I remember reading about it and I was like, there's no way this happens. But um, I remember reading that people walk their birds in China. <laughs> And I, and I was like, there's no way this happens. And um, I lived in China last year for six months and I saw one of my neighbours doing it. And I was like, I've never been yeah. so excited in my life. Um, see, seeing somebody walk their bird was so interesting because, you know, we have dogs and cats and all of these things. Um, whereas, for example, you would never in, your, in a million years see somebody walking down the street holding their bird in a cage um yeah in europe right. for example so i think but it's sort how, of how do they how do they walk them do they do they attach a little leash to them and, and let them out of their cage and just kind of like run along or so people um i've seen people do like two slightly different behaviors but some people have like not a child's buggy but like a little trolley which you put your cage on and you sort of push your bird to the park and maybe you meet other bird owners there who've also bought their birds to show so what's really interesting is in terms of owning birds it's very much about the community as well that you're in and um, so for example that's both you know bird walkers in China and Taiwan and also um, members of the songbird competition community in Indonesia so I think that sort of community spirit is quite common um, and some people have compared things like songbird competitions to crafts in the UK, um, mm. which is like this massive dog pedigree competition. So I think they're sort of, they've co-evolved over time. Obviously the difference is that with bird trade, we are often talking about a large percentage of the birds being caught from the wild, which is why it's generally of conservation concern. But I think also the sort of power of, the songbird community at least in indonesia is powerful enough to lobby government for example really? um indonesia updated their conservation law last year and they listed some species which are really really popular in competitions and in trade and the songbird keeping community actually lobbied to take some of those species off the conservation mm. list and they were successful so it's a strong enough community that they sort of have the power to alter conservation law. So I think, yeah. you know, it's sort of a big force to be reckoned with and it's kind of testament to how important it is to people. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a little bit of um, the hunter community in, in France. Um, I think the, what was it? It was around like 1 million people in France that hunt yeah. uh, every year. So that's what a 70th of their population, something like that. Um, but it's strong enough to, have done things like back when when Nicolas Hulot was uh, was environment minister under Macron and, and trying to change things. Um, Macron kind of gave in to the the pressure of the hunter lobby and and halved the hunting license fees, uh, making it that much easier to get uh, a hunting license, which is which went against everything he believed in Nicolas Hulot. So that's um, little little spoiler he quit uh <laughs> which yeah. was too bad because he was one of my favorite um one of my favorite I don't know, environmentalists and, and i think he would have been a great minister if he'd given if be, if he'd been given the the wiggle room to do what he wanted mm. it's actually interesting that you say that uh, about the hunting lobby in france because this is what definitely one of the things i feel most passionate about with bird trade is that I mean, songbirds in particular, even though I think they're very beautiful, they're not really seen as, you know, charismatic. They're smaller bodied. When we tend to think of birds, I think, you know, probably subconsciously we're thinking of a flock or we're thinking of a number of animals. So maybe that does sort of affect public discourse. You know, we're not, it's not like it's the one solitary rhino left kind of mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Um, and particularly in Europe, we're all, now focused you know wildlife trade in asia bush meat markets in africa that kind of thing mm -hmm. but trade in europe is so normalized and so invisible and especially for birds um and i re i read recently that 
of the a million licensed hunters of France, they collectively kill 17 million birds a year. Wow. Which is like just an unfathomable number. Um, yeah. Especially with the, now... the data coming out on the amount of, of birds um, since what, 1990 uh, had gone down by double digits. I mean, it, it was ridiculous. Yeah. So, you know, the hunt, if the hunting lobby has more power, then you can really see the tangible results. 17 million birds a year is an incredibly mm -hmm. large number. And I think now uh, songbird meat in Europe has the same value as marijuana. So mm. you can sort of see how, you know, as hunting increases, you see this like what's called the anthropogenic allay effect, which is really common in wildlife trade wildlife trade and it's sort of quite well aligned to concepts in bird trade so you see increased hunting so the population goes down so the market price increases um and the species becomes you know more rare and then that becomes more desired anyway okay. so that's been quite a big factor for a lot what? of species of birds I remember, I think it was on when I was reading your uh, your personal website called uh, Conservation Sensation, uh, for everyone who wants to maybe go check it out. There's a really good read on the um, article on COVID, uh, COVID myths and, and, and kind of topics, but also um, about your visit to Hua Diwan uh, in the Guangzhou uh, market. But I wanted to ask, kind of related to that Guangzhou, is it Guangzhou, Guangzhou? I never know. Yeah, you can just say it's Guangzhou. Yeah, Guangzhou. Okay. Either is fine. All right, because I have a, a team uh, uh, for for this uh, esport that I quite like from Guangzhou, but even the even the broadcasters don't know how to say the name. <laughs> um, so I'll just say Guangzhou. So I wanted to hear a little bit about uh, your experience in Guangzhou and and how it may differ from your experiences in in Europe, but also more specifically, why you think that we have this obsession with uh, collecting things? I think this is a question that, that was um, posed on, on your website at one point that I read through. But it, it, is, it is something to kind of think about as to why are we so obsessed with, it, with collecting, what, be it birds, be it you know, just living things. I think there's, there's a really big difference between collecting things like coins, like my dad collects two euro coins, big shout out to dad but <laughs> i hope your collection's getting more ex extensive by the day but at least it's not connecting living things i feel like there's quite a big difference yeah um i mean that's actually a question that interests me i think on a very fundamental level so i'll start with why i was in Guangzhou mm -hmm. in china and then um what i sort of learned from that that helped me to understand like why people have an obsession with collecting things so um, I was in Guangzhou last year for like six, seven months, and I was doing a research internship at a really cool university called Sun Yat-sen University um, in the Socio-Ecological Conservation Science Group. And I basically um, just emailed this professor who was recently starting the lab there, and I was like, I really want to experience wildlife trade and I'd love to go and work in China for a bit and learn Mandarin, just sort of experience a different perspective. Um, so I was really lucky because he said yes. Um, yeah. And I was sort of, I've seen like, I'd seen the other side of wildlife trade. So I worked um, quite a lot in sea turtle conservation and I worked on a project, for example, in Costa Rica with whether a lot of poachers and a lot of people who used to poach. So I could kind of understand the sort of broad normative reasons why people, for example, engage in poaching and things like this. But I really wanted to see what it was like, you know, if you go to a wildlife market, because I think we have a lot of commentary in the media and a lot of people might not have actually been to markets or have no clue what they look like. Um, so I think there's quite an interesting distinction between markets, which I saw when I was in China. So Huadi One Market, which um, have a paper coming out hopefully on soon, um, is a explicit pet market. So it's brick and mortar. It was built specifically for pet trade. It's open seven days a week. Um, it's actually switched to a new location now. But you but can... It was, sorry, it was potentially the largest in China, if not the world, I remember you saying. Yeah. So it's sort of decreased with increased 
law enforcement, the species diversity of the market had actually increased. But in terms of a few years ago, it was definitely one of the biggest markets in China. And they used to sort of have hundreds and hundreds of bird species there. In the early 2000s, there were raptors and, and falcons, despite, you know, MOUs and global agreements being signed on not harvesting migratory species or um, sort of larger birds of the hawk nature. Um, and that was very interesting to me because we're sort of, we always see this distinction, for example, in the UK, you go to a pet shop or you go to the supermarket and you would never go to the pet shop to buy food yourself for example <laughs> unless you're really hungry i guess um but for example when i was in this pet market i was looking at this turtle species and one of the traders said to me the chinese word for delicious and i was like I i'm not here to buy a yeah. turtle to eat but that was quite interesting to me because i was like well why would somebody want to sell me turtle to eat in what is explicitly a pet market mm. and that was quite interesting for me to learn then is that there are actually a lot of species, especially in areas like China, that have multiple purposes for trade. So maybe they are hunted in the south of China, but they can sell for sometimes up to 20 times the price in a pet market. So oh, wow. normally pets have higher the value. And then you also have what is commonly referred to now in the media as a wet market. So this could be like there was a wet market behind my house kind of thing. And you could buy live catfish and fresh vegetables from within the province. Um, or you could buy a turtle to eat. Yeah. So there's sort of a lot of they're really diverse forums in China where you can sort of buy and access wildlife. Um, and I think in terms of why do we have an obsession with collecting things? I think there's several different examples um, or motivations for why people want to own pets because I think before we domesticated cats and dogs we did start with the exotic you know a lot of people who are higher up in society wanted to create menageries and all of these you know collections which eventually became zoos and I think with that is this concept of owning nature and taming nature which comes from you know, humans' ultimate need to be superior to other animals. And I think even if we don't partake in pet ownership, we're still doing that in some way, whether it's meat ownership or habitat, uh, sorry, meat consumption or owning other animals or habitat destruction, that kind of thing. Yeah. But I think it's very visceral when you want an actual live wild animal in your house. Um, and I, I think also as well, we're just attracted to beautiful things. Mm -hmm. We want to have beautiful birds that look like jewels in our house. Mm -hmm. Like proximity to nature, I think people also assume it kind of makes you superior, makes your life better. It makes mm -hmm. your life beautiful as well. So I think they're very complex relationships, but ultimately so, it, it stems from that, yeah. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we are kind of all, I think, throughout every culture in the world, including uh, Europe, uh, we are kind of domesticating and owning animals at the end of the day. So how can we, how can we improve things for endangered species, specifically in Asia, which is, you know, the, the specific region you're studying and focusing on? How can we, how can we better things there in terms of conservation without kind of falling into the traps of um of this paternalistic kind of viewing of asia as a as you know this bizarre obsession with birds for example when we have a bizarre obsession with dogs or cats and you know yeah um that's a really good question actually and one thing i wanted to touch on was um there was a really cool paper from a lot of the researchers of Biosec. I think we interviewed yes. one of them before, George, <laughs> George, George which Jurkescu. is an incredible episode. I really enjoyed it. And oh. um, they wrote this really interesting paper about the risk of characterizing the imaginary Asian super consumer. 
um, mm-hmm. which was really interesting because they basically talk about how conjuring up this image kind of creates this non-existent caricature you know this casual consumer they buy birds they snort rhino horn powder mm-hmm. they own several ele- elephant ivory tusks and um, and they sort of talk about the harm that those kind of racist tropes can yeah. um sort of lead to so i think it's really important to understand that no consumer is the same and that working with consumers is most likely the solution um but i think also as well it's necessary to not also fall into the trap of like indigenous people and local people are either culprits of biodiversity decline or you know they're the sentinels and guardians of local biodiversity it's more like on the spectrum i think in terms of the broad solution is probably to start breeding the most popular species in captivity at least in Indonesia, there are some successful examples already of breeding zebra doves. Obviously, lovebirds have been really well bred from West Africa and they're now sort of sold in areas all around the world. And a lot of the most popular species in Indonesia, for example, are captive bred. Even though there are hundreds of wild species also involved in trade, if we sort of focus down on those. Unfortunately, though, with coronavirus, I think that kind of poses new challenges. For example, China shut down most of their farms, which were being used to captively breed meat or animals for pet trade because of coronavirus, which in some ways was almost quite sad because these were mechanisms that were used to initiate massive poverty alleviation mm. in areas like China. Um, and a lot of people who were involved in markets and trading also lost their jobs. So now if you lose the ability to captively breed animals to supplement and kind of capture and treat the demand, then potentially there are new challenges. And I think we're already seeing that with bird trade, for example, even during coronavirus pandemic and lockdown, bird trade is still continuing. There are still reports of new species being found in trade in areas like Indonesia. So I think Mm-hmm. It's going to be very interesting how we can balance the threat of coronavirus with increasing the capacity of captive bred operations. So I think captive bred is probably the way forward because we can't just cut off this centuries old cultural demand. Um, yeah. There's a really famous phrase in Indonesia, which is that every man should have a horse, a house, a wife, a ceremonial dagger and a bird. <laughs> so if every man has to have one you can kind of understand how much effort it would take to just make yeah. an incredibly yeah. culturally important phrase just mm-hmm. mute uh, so, this feels like it does it does kind of um relate a little bit to that episode with uh, biosex and uh, george urikescu on on forests and how maybe blanket bans and things like that aren't the way forward like they may seem Mm. like the right idea but if you really dig into the the effects you see that it often affects the the sort of the people at the bottom who are there who could be a good tool in the fight for for that in, in a sense and instead those things like like if we were to ban all bird um trade I'm sure that would cause, at least on the immediate level, that would cause a whole lot of harm. Yeah. I mean, not just to humans, but to birds as well. It's, it's actually interesting. There was um, an EU ban in 2005 on live bird imports following bird flu. And I think it ended up decreasing in terms like 90% or something. But even though it was a blanket ban and it was technically successful in reducing the amount of trade the birds that were most popular in countries like the Netherlands and Belgium and Spain were parrots from West Africa. And obviously parrots from West Africa are really important. You know, the African grey is kind of a staple in terms of what most people would have seen in terms of birds in trade. But now, you know, in the years since, the African grey gets uplisted to CITES Appendix 1, which is the highest level of protection it's critically endangered 
on the IUCN. So it sometimes might take populations years to respond. And rather than investing in declining a ban, if maybe they'd invested in more conservation efforts or disincentives to sort of leave wildlife trade in those yeah. areas, mm -hmm. I could have potentially stopped what is now just continuing illegal trade and it's now just all shifted online. So I think bans can be incredibly ineffective because they just displace the trade elsewhere. Um, and like you said, yeah, they harm the people at the very bottom. And all of these people kind of calling to end trade now. I think it's important that we rethink our relationship with nature completely. And that goes to legal trade, that goes to trade in domestic animals and how they are also very susceptible to disease. Um, but it's not like the people calling for trade are coming up with concrete solutions for alternative livelihoods or poverty reduction or aid to the countries yeah. who are now going to have growing unemployment rates. Now, what happens think, in, in nature if when you know bird numbers go down drastically mm. to the point where it becomes dangerous? Like I, I'm wondering if you know anything about the effects that that could have on nature. Yeah. Well, one interesting thing is we actually don't really know yet. Yeah. We're sort of selectively taking all of these species out. One thing we do know is that bird trade in comparison to other trades um, is incredibly taxonomically conserved. So what that means is that we know certain groups of species are really popular. So for example, hornbills play highly functionalized roles in rainforest, for example, in terms of feed dispersal and many other ecosystem services. It's likely that if you, you know, repeatedly take birds which have a very specialized role in their ecosystem, we will see collapse of ecosystem services. Um, some which would probably be most noticeable to a lot of people would be pet increase of pests um, and insects and other sort of animals lower down in the food yeah. chain. And ultimately, the initial effects we would see is that forests go silent. Um, and it's particularly sort of scary in areas such as Southeast Asia because we see incredibly high diversity of birds. We see cryptic diversity of birds. So there are some birds, they're, they're too difficult to tell apart basically. So they get put in a lumped species complex. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it could have tens of, you know, 30 species in one complex. And each subspecies would play a very specific role in tropical forests or montane forests across Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, that kind of thing. So I think we definitely need a lot more research that quantifies which services yeah. are lost in particular. But which is a what lot you're of, doing in, in part, right? Yeah, so I'm actually involved in another piece of research where we, we're sort of trying to flesh out what it could initially look like in terms of loss of ecosystem services um, and you know what is actually the impact if we trade hundreds of species in massive volumes um, mm. and we see declines of really important groups we can kind of start to think about what that could mean for ecosystems but it's very it's very well known now that bird trade can directly lead to extinction and population crashes even in species that were once very abundant. So it is a very powerful pressure on wild bird populations. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to kind of put out there, either shout outs or, or mentions for specific organizations, individuals, or maybe even just a, a thought to end on about around birds maybe? <laughs> yeah, um, I think, I'll, I'll take a shout out and um, a statistic to kind of leave. <laughs> oh, leave that's the two. Note. Nope, you got to pay the extension bonus. Extension for that. <laughs> fee. Can I do two? Is that okay? Of course, of course. Um, so, firstly, yeah, definitely want to shout out the wonderful fellow women researchers who I'm really lucky to work with. Um, my supervisors, Dave and Julio at the University of Kent. Um, we obviously didn't speak too much about my master's research, but just to sort of being supportive um, and also to Harry Marshall who is one of the researchers who's done a lot already for birds in the past couple of years and the statistic I'd like to end on which is why I think birds should be 
taken more seriously is that 23% of all bird species have been recorded in trade, which is of massive concern. But also, given that we know we can't completely end wildlife trade, I think we need to be moving towards a direction where we can make trade legal, safe, sustainable and traceable for people engaging in it and for the consumers as well. Yeah, sounds very good. Um, I'm going to put a link to your Twitter in the description and everything. And I really uh, encourage everyone to maybe go and keep up with your master's uh, research to see when it's uh, finished. Do you have an idea of maybe when it could be done? Yeah, so um, I hopefully have a couple of papers on bird trade in Indonesia and China coming out next year. And then my master's research to kind of improve species identification for birds and wildlife trade will potentially be out at the end of next year. And it might be extended into a PhD, so fingers crossed. All right. Yeah. yeah, fingers crossed. That would be great. Um, well, you know what? I'll send you an invite for, for the podcast if it's still running. Hopefully it is. But um, at the, towards the end of next year, and maybe you can come back and, and talk about these uh, published papers and uh, your finished master's research. Yeah, that'd be amazing. That'd be really cool. It gives right. me another chance to beat Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, something tells sound. me he won't have a hundred percent correct rate at that point, but yeah. we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I'll be listening. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Cicely, thank you so much for coming on. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me, guys. <laughs>